We'll uh, get into Acts chapter 2 tonight. Our Father, we're thankful again that you have seen fit to call us out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light. We thank you for bringing the gospel to our hearts that we may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and having believed, uh, enjoy eternal life forever. We pray tonight that the Holy Spirit sent by the risen ascended Jesus Christ from heaven uh, will teach our hearts and open them to the truths of Scripture. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to page 31 in the notes, I want to just make sure that we're all clear on the uh, calendar of the nation Israel so that we understand the significance of uh, the uh, Pentecost happening. One of the... uh, one of the proofs, one of the evidences of the Word of God, um, the veracity of the Word of God, is how the prophecies that it makes are so specific uh, and so detailed and the fulfillment so detailed. And we've been studying Israel's calendar because uh, it's the only calendar on earth that has been inspired by God and reflects history. And so on that chart, table four on page 31, uh, we've gone through uh, the, the seven parts, seven highlights of Israel's calendar, at least her ancient calendar, some more Jewish holidays in there since then. Um, but in New Testament times, these were the key events. And the important thing to just recall about those is that the first four form the spring cycle. The last three form the fall cycle. The first four have been literally fulfilled. The last three have never been literally fulfilled. So that tells you that history is still progressing and that Israel is still God's timepiece. Passover fulfilled the very day that Jesus Christ died. Not an accident. He died exactly on Passover. We had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then we have first fruits. And exactly on the day of first fruits, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because Israel's calendar is a timepiece of history. Exactly on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came because the calendar is the timepiece of history. That chart shows, however, that trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles have not yet been fulfilled. There's nothing in history that matches those. But we can speculate that what we do know from that fall cycle is that whatever events those three feasts days, holidays on the calendar refer to, it will happen in the fall. And we don't know exactly what the Feast of Trumpets, what the Day of Trumpets um, uh, commemorates, or will commemorate something, possibly some event in Israel's history that will focus attention on the Messiah. The Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, we speculate, 
will be the day in which the nation Israel will confess Isaiah 53. That's when that passage, that her, their eyes will be opened to who Jesus Christ was and they will confess nationally, they will confess nationally that he is, is the Christ. And once that happens, then the prophecy that Jesus said when he on Palm Sunday rode into the city of Jerusalem and he said um, that, um, blessed are you, uh, well, I will, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And so therefore, when the Day of Atonement happens in some autumn season in the future, and the nation Israel confesses uh, their sin and looks to the atonement of the Messiah, then very shortly thereafter, the Millennial Kingdom starts because the Feast of Tabernacles seems to picture that peace. And there are only, you know, there's a matter of days, weeks, between the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're talking something, you know, when it happens, it happens pretty, pretty fast. But that hasn't happened yet. So we're, we're only halfway through the calendar of Israel right now. All right. Now tonight, we're going to go spend most of our time in Acts chapter 2. And this gets to be a little complicated. Um, this is why uh, it requires a little bit of uh, understanding of what we've co come through. Remember, we've looked at the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. And if you think about it, um, those of you who either have come out of Roman Catholicism or you have Roman Catholic friends, uh, you always can tell a crucifix in Roman Catholicism from a crucifix in Protestantism by what? Jesus is still on it. Catholic crucifixes always have Jesus on it. Protestant crucifixes have Jesus off of it. And that's, uh, that's saying something. In Catholicism, Jesus, the Mass, is a recapitulation all the time of the work of the cross, the work of the cross, the work of the cross, the Mass, the Mass, the Mass, the Mass, the Mass. We redo the, we redo the sacrifice, we redo the sacrifice, we redo the sacrifice. And so, Jesus is on the cross. I remember someone saying once that there was, in New York City, uh, a Catholic school, had a lot of Catholic schools there, and there was this Jewish boy who was misbehaving a uh, little delinquent, and so his parents decided to straighten him out, and they sent him to the Catholic school. And the boy came home the first day just almost trembling. And the parents said, well, what happened? He says, I got in that classroom, and I saw that guy on the cross, and I knew they meant business around here. <laughs> so if Catholicism has Jesus Christ on the cross, Protestants have at least got him resurrected. But Protestant theology, I don't believe, has pushed far enough in the chain here. We don't talk too much about this, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And in talking to the missionaries uh, last weekend, we had a wonderful time uh, with, a, uh, with a field director of UFM in Haiti. And, um, of course, Haiti is a country that was dedicated to Satan. It's one of the, it's kind of a rare thing in history that it was consciously, self-consciously dedicated to Satan because the Haitians wanted to get rid of the French. 
And so they said, they prayed, and they had ceremonies to Satan that if Satan would get, give them freedom from France, Haiti would serve Satan forever. And the result of that was that it's an entrenched culture of voodooism and, and demonic stuff and so forth. And um, we were talking about the importance of emphasizing this in a demonic culture. Because in a demonic culture, uh, as they were telling us, um, you, you can go to witch doctors, and by the way, they, they blew away my image of a witch doctor by pointing out to me that they're usually very well dressed and would look past very well for Western businessmen. Most of them are wealthy by Haitian standards. And um, it's remarkable that the witch doctors to whom they've been witnessing can tell you the whole gospel. Not only can they tell you the whole issues, but then they'll, they'll conclude, when you, of course you're sitting there as a Christian wondering, well, you know the gospel, why don't you believe? And their response is very interesting. It says, we can uh, we envy you Christians because you will go to heaven forever and we know we go to hell. We know that Satan, once he is through with us, will discard us like a piece of trash. But we cannot believe. And so they said, well, why can't you believe? And they said, because it would betray the covenant that we have made. And so this is the kind of mentality uh, of a very damning type of mentality in that situation. Of course, the uh, irony is that one of the greatest opponents to missionary work in Haiti right now are the sociologists who have come down under auspices of the United Nations. Uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Muchmore was telling us about how she taken some kids to the pool and this lady found out she was with the UN delegation also at the pool, I guess, with her kids and found out she was a missionary and almost uh, yelled at her. Uh, how despicable you missionaries come down here and try to rupture this voodoo culture. This is their national heritage, and you should be happy with it, and you should stop trying to interfere with it. Say, same kind of thing now, cultural relativity. Remember what we said? What do we say when we go back into the Old Testament? What began with Abraham? Remember the, the thing? When God, when the pagan civilization, when we have the uh, Noahic civilization paganized out, God called Abraham, and what do we say happens? Disrupts the disruptive kingdom. And from the Abraham's call in 2000 BC all the way to this year, all the way to this year, we have had a situation where everywhere the Word of God goes, it has an exclusivist claim because beginning with Abraham, God does not reveal himself to all people directly. He reveals himself to an elect, special subset of the human race who then become missionaries to the rest of the human race. And that act is very profoundly disturbing, disruptive, and even evil from the standpoint of a person who believes it's good in all men and everybody's got a little piece of the truth and how arrogant you are to, to, with you Christians, with your gospel saying that you've got the only way. It's not our way. You know, two plus two is four. I don't get chewed out in math class because there's only one answer to the problem. Why should we get chewed out in the spiritual area because there's one answer to sin? Okay, so here we are 
in a situation where Jesus Christ's career consists of these crucial events. And we need to understand how he is the focal point of all these things. Remember we said that the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these events in his life uh, are, um, are tremendous uh, points to reflect upon and meditate upon. Um, all of them are at anchoring critical doctrines and all of them require a great deal of attention and theological and spiritual balance or you find yourself in trouble real quick. Remember we said here's the birth of Jesus Christ that's the hypostatic union. What do we mean, hypostatic union? Hypostasis means being. It's a union of two natures. Jesus Christ, undiminished deity, united with true humanity, not phony humanity, not half humanity, not he's going to rely on, on he's just a human body in whom God dwelt. No, God, he had a human spirit, he had a human soul, he had a human body, he had everything human. He was true humanity. But he was also undiminished deity. United in one person, without confusion, forever. Without confusion, maintaining the creator-creature distinction. So, that's critical. Now, what that does, this birth of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is associated with a virgin birth, and therefore ridiculed by all the critics, Jesus and Mary and Joseph didn't know that that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, the hypostatic union is critical because... It's that union that ratifies the creator-creature distinction on one hand, and at the same time, in a day of skepticism, uh, particularly in the area of literature, that guarantees that God can talk to man. Think about it for a minute. If Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, united with true humanity in one person, not two, not a schizophrenic, in one person, then deity and humanity can fellowship. See, there's the proof that the infinite creator in his omniscience can commune with a finite creature with his limited experience because it happened in the person of Jesus Christ. So you see, we Christians don't have a problem with language. We don't have a problem that language has to be interpreted and you have to have all this cultural bias and so on. No cultural bias going on in here. See what I'm saying? These are, these are substantive thoughts and great truths that they're not just religious. This applies to literature. This applies to philosophy. This applies to theory of language. This is not just religious. And then we come to Jesus Christ's life, and we'll pick up on that further as we go further in the events of the New Testament. But all these difficult doctrines that we talked about in connection with the life of Christ become critical when in the New Testament we are said to share the life of Christ. Well, what was the life of Christ? Well, in kenosis, what do we say by kenosis? We said that Jesus Christ gave up the what? Kenosis is giving up. He gave up the use of his attributes? No, because he used his attributes. What did he give up? Anybody remember? He gave up the voluntary use of his attributes. What does that mean? It means that he submitted to his father's will. He could not arbitrarily, when Satan said to him, turn this bread, uh, turn the stones into bread, was Jesus omnipotent? Could he have done that? Yes, he could have. But 
because Jesus Christ was like a test pilot testing the aircraft, Jesus Christ for preceding us, Jesus Christ had to rely on the Holy Spirit like we have to. And at that point, even though he had omnipotence, we don't have omnipotence, it's not even a temptation for us, we may wish we had it, but he had it. And he refrained from using his omnipotence and instead relied upon the cues from his father, relied upon the Holy Spirit, and when they gave the, the green light and said, hey, show your attributes, then he would show his attributes. But he showed his attributes very, very selectively. Garden of Gethsemane, you know, police go, the, the temple police come up there and they all hit the deck because all of a sudden he said, I am. And what caused that? Because he was reiterating his, suddenly his deity flashed forth in some spooky way that we don't understand. And these guys just boom. boom. So he could, if he wanted to, reveal that. But that's all kenosis. And it's a tremendous testimony to his mental attitude of faith. Because that's the passage Paul, remember, in Philippians 2, says, let this mind be in you, which was what? which was in Christ Jesus. And if you don't understand the hypostatic union kenosis, you can't really understand what Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 2. And then we had impeccability, that Jesus Christ was able not to sin, and in the God's plan, looked at from his sovereignty, he was not able to sin. And he was infallible, and there's the defense of Scripture. When we talk about an infallible Bible, Jesus was infallible. You know, if, it's, if a, a person can't write something without error, uh, I mean, if Jesus couldn't minister without error, then we would have an argument for the errancy of the Bible. But it's the other way around. Jesus Christ demonstrated inerrancy every day of his life. So if Jesus Christ could demonstrate in his person, in experience, in real history, walking around Palestine, inerrancy, what have we got a problem with the Bible for? If you have a problem with inerrancy with the Bible, you've got a problem with Jesus Christ. And then in his death, this was a tremendous event because that was the substitutionary blood atonement looked forward to in the Old Testament. And if that death and that death alone that is the basis for our sin, our, the forgiveness of sin. It's not going to church. It's not being baptized. It's not dedicating your life to Christ. It's not inviting Jesus into your heart. It's not all the other stuff. It's only one thing. The blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Believe that he has paid for your sin personally and you trust in that and that alone. Anything else patched on, tacked on is not the gospel. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the glorification issue. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ, in resurrection, showed something new in the history of the universe, in that Jesus' body is the first material, remember, resurrection is material, Jesus' resurrection body is the first material component of the eternal universe. Jesus' resurrection body is the first component of the resurrection body, of the um, eternal universe. Okay, now we come, what we're doing now is the ascension of Christ. We finished that, and now comes Pentecost. Now, the issue in Acts chapter 2 
is going to be on Jesus Christ's ascension. And the responsibility of that ascension for the next event, which is Pentecost. That's the argument. And we won't want to lose the forest for the trees, because we're going to get in the trees now very quickly. And there are certain people going around in our own camp that are and coming out, including coming out of Dallas Seminary, that are, are kind of fouling up the waters here in Acts chapter 2. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to begin in uh, verse 14. Beginning at verse 14, if you look all the way down to verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. What we want to do here is master the logic of Peter's presentation. This is going to be Peter. Now, if you look in your notes on page 31 again, I want, to, I want you to follow me through the first paragraph under the day of Pentecost, the New Testament interpretation. It will be convenient to study the New Testament interpretation by looking at two apparently, please underline apparently, we don't, apparently different streams of thought put forward by Peter and by Luke and Paul. Peter's interpretation of the event occurred within minutes and is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. It primarily concerns the nation Israel. On the other hand, Luke portrays a longer historical perspective spanning the years described in his book of Acts from Pentecost to the imprisonment of Paul in Rome. At, as the close traveling companion of Paul, Luke undoubtedly reflects Paul's view of the origin of the church and the gradual realization of its existence as an entity separate from the nation Israel. That's what's going on in Acts, a gradual realization that something else happened on Pentecost. So I want to introduce this tonight by pointing out, as tonight, we're going to look at Peter's interpretation of Pentecost because Peter is interpreting Pentecost solely as it deals with the nation Israel. He is not talking about the church. The church, he probably doesn't have a clue that the church has even started here yet. The church has not emerged. Now, actually, we'll find out from Paul and Luke, the church was formed on the day of Pentecost. That every person who was a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of the body of Christ in history. But they don't know that right now. And for a reason. Remember, back when we, we've gone over this several times this year, John the Baptist and Elijah. Remember that passage, where the funny passage that Jesus said, if you had believed... John the Baptist and accepted me the kingdom would come now and he would be Elijah but we know that John wasn't Elijah so there's this contingency if the nation had accepted Christ as Savior the kingdom would have come and that guy John the Baptist would have been Elijah now the same kind of thing is happening here in Acts Peter is going to, beginning in verse 14, address the nation, and he is going to 
address specifically the issue of Israel and its Messiah. And if you'll skip down to the end of his address, look how he ends this address in verse 36. He says, Let all the house, therefore, of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? When he got through this interpretation of the events of Pentecost, it made... Uh, it, it was just like a body blow to the people who had heard this thing. This is a, a sermon that cuts to the heart of the Jewish mind. This is a sermon that profoundly disturbed them. In fact, this is a message that is going to get eventually Peter in jail. This is a message that will stimulate murder of believers. Because it, like Paul in Acts 17, like we don't do today when we preach the gospel, Peter and Paul both encircled their addressees. So there was no escape. Paul, you remember in Acts 17, we preached to pagans. What did he say? What was his conclusion? God calls all men everywhere to repentance, and he has given assurance of this and that he's raised Jesus from the dead and he will judge all men by this person of Christ. So, you can believe, you can disbelieve, you're going to meet Jesus. You are going to meet Jesus Christ. Period. Like it or not, believe it or not. Doesn't matter whether you believe it. He is still judge. Now, that is offensive. That is a very offensive, disturbing, politically incorrect message. And this is what Peter's doing here. Because in verse 36, it's quite clear that he is blaming the nation for the crucifixion of Christ. He not only is blaming the nation, but he has the audacity to say that the very guy you murdered is the guy that God made, Kyrios, the Lord. And the word Kyrios is the word that is used to translate Yahweh in the Old Testament. So, you talk about, you know, get on the train or get off. This is the sermon that did it. So, what we want to understand now is how his logic works. And in order to... This is not easy because, Jesus, uh, because Peter presumes a literacy of the Old Testament. And we don't have that literacy today. So, the average Christian reading Acts 2 is never going to get it. He doesn't know enough about the Old Testament. And he'll come up with something, well, gee, that's an evangelistic sermon and we ought to do the same thing. No. This is not a church age evangelistic sermon in Acts 2, 14 through 36. It is a specialized sermon at a critical point in national Israel's history over their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, yes, it applies to us and yes, there are truths that apply, but it was not a typical church age evangelistic message. So let's go into the message. Let's look upon the structure of the message before we go into the details. Notice, if you have a, a modern translation, you'll see verses 17 through 21 are set off in the text because they're quotations from the Old Testament. So immediately, as you look at this passage, you observe from verse 17 down to verse 
21 is an Old Testament citation. Specifically, it's Joel chapter 28 uh, through 32. Joel 2, 28 through 32. Then if you look further down in the passage, you'll see verses 25 through 28 are also a quote from the Old Testament. And this is from Psalm 16. So 25 down through uh, 28, you have Psalm 16 quoted. Then you have bits and pieces quoted because if you look in verse 30, uh, there you'll see Psalm 116 quoted. And um, Psalm 132, excuse me. And on verse 31, uh, let's see, where's the one? Uh, you will see. Where's verse 31? He was abandoned to haze, nor will his flesh suffer decay. He, what he's doing there is he is um, referring back to Psalm, to Psalm um, 32. Psalm 16, I mean. So, uh, and let's see, that's about. Oh, no, down verse 34, you'll see some more pieces. There's Psalm 110. So you've got Psalm 132, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Now that's a lot of Old Testament texts. And if you count the number of verses here, you'll see it's almost 50% of his sermon is citations out of the Old Testament. And that's why this makes this such a challenging passage to interpret correctly and accurately. So what we want to do is break it up into parts. Let's watch what he does in verses 14, 15, and 16 because that's the lead-in to his first quote. So, what is he saying in verses 14 through 16? Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. Now notice, who is he addressing? Greeks or Jews? Jews. He says, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. Ah. And you remember we said, if you look back up in the ear, when tongues happened, verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven because they were there for the Pentecost feast. And they had heard their, all the languages, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 13. And then there was a, then they were all in amazement and they knew that verse 11 clearly says they understood them to be foreign languages. But then in verse 13 it says, others, others were mocking. So it's a second group of Jews that said these guys are drunk. They didn't understand. So obviously the people in verse 13, by their remark, what do you know about them? Did they know those languages? No. So these guys were probably native Jews, Jews that were not polyglots, not people who spoke all these other languages. So Peter then, he's going to talk particularly to the men of Judea, because 
they're the ones that didn't get to first base with the tongues. They still think the guys are drunk. Because in verse 15, you see he addresses drunkenness. So it's clear from his remark in verse 14 and 15, he must be referring to the others of verse 13. Because it's the people in verse 13 that have made the claim that these guys are drunk. So he's addressing them, because notice in verse 14, he's not addressing the people from uh, the Elamites, he's not addressing people from Mesopotamia, he's not addressing people from Pontus, he's not addressing people from Asia, he's addressing people from Jerusalem and Judea. So these are his own people living in his own backyard. Now, he says, verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So now what is Peter doing? He's doing what we ought to do and make a habit of in our lives when we encounter some event, something that happens, we envelop it in the Word of God. Always wrap the Word of God around a problem. Learn to do that. Always take a situation in life and encase it inside of the Word of God. Because if you don't do that, that problem will encase the Word of God. It's either the Word of God controls the event, or the event is going to control your, your uh, memory of the Word of God and you will not believe. Faith rest principle. So in order to believe, you've got to learn to control events, circumstances, and situations by an interpretation based on the Word of God. So, that's what Peter's doing. And he says, this phenomenon that you have just heard, verse 11, We'll hear them in languages speaking the mighty deeds of God. That was, the, that was a good observation that the out-of-town Jews made. He says, This thing of the Word of God coming in other languages from a whole bunch of people. So here are all the people that were speaking in tongues. All these people talking in various languages and they were presenting the deeds of God. So there was revelation occurring through, in a miraculous way through their mouth. So he says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And now he's going to begin a quote, and he's going to split the quote with a comment. So if you look very carefully at verse 17 and verse 18, you will notice that at the end of verse 18, he injects a comment that tells you how he's interpreting the Old Testament passage. Not a mystery. So we're going to stop. We're going to just take verses 17 and 18 first because that's what he did. And then we're going to stop at the end of verse 18 and reflect on what he just said. This is a citation from Joel. And it shall be in the last days that I will pour out, pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind and your daughters, uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour in those days, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. Then Peter adds this comment, and they shall prophesy. So by adding that comment, that cues us as to what was on Peter's mind when he went back to that Old Testament text. That's what he saw in that Old Testament text. That that Old Testament text was foretelling a time when revelation would come through what we would call the lay people. 
This wasn't the, the classical standard prophets. This all of a sudden was a breaking out of revelation in the ordinary ordinary lay people were doing this. I mean, after all, if you think about socially, where did Peter stand? Was he considered to be a lay person? You bet. He wasn't in the leadership of the nation Israel. He wasn't in the high priesthood. He was, in the, you know, he was just in the regular street people. That's what he was. Businessman. Ordinary person. So he's saying, don't be shocked when the revelation's happening here. It's not coming through the high priest. It's not coming through Isaiah. It's not coming through a classical prophet. It's coming through street people. And that's exactly what Joel said would happen. Well, now we've got to go over to Joel to see the context of that passage in Joel. So, you'll turn in the Old Testament to Joel. You turn halfway through the Old Testament and then start turning toward the New Testament. And you'll see the, 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 the big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and Joel. We want to look at this Joel passage to see what back there Joel was talking about. And we want to remember that Joel ministered in the declining period of the nation. So that goes back, and we've got to rely now upon our knowledge of the Old Testament. And you remember that we have the golden era of Solomon. That was the cultural zenith of the nation. And everything from there on went downhill. And it was during this time when the kingdom was in decline that the great prophets wrote. And what did we say the great prophets did? They weren't social reformers like you learn in some university college classroom with some liberal who thinks that it's, oh, he identifies with the social reformers. They weren't social reformers. They were prosecuting attorneys. What they were doing was bringing the covenant of Moses to bear upon the nation and say, God promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. You have disobeyed. Therefore, don't be amazed when the Assyrians come in and they destroy your homes, they kill your husbands, they rape your wives, and they turn your children into slaves. Don't be shocked at that. God said that's what would happen. Because you were a chosen people, you were supposed to shine with the Word of God, you were supposed to carry the Word of God forth, and you didn't do that. So, you're God, and He has a right to do with you as He wants to do with you. So that's the message of the prophets. Now, the prophets understood that sin was so entrenched in the nation, there was no solution to the problem. And by the way, here's a political argument from the Scriptures. You know, it's amazing. People always say, oh, the Bible's a religious book. That's a political book and a science book, too. And one of the arguments of Scripture comes out of this is that if the period up here prior to the monarchy was democracy, you know, judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, that showed the sinfulness of the citizens. Who were the leaders here that caused all this mess? Politicians, the leaders. So, if the people were sinners 
and had to have strong leadership, and then the leadership failed, there's no hope for the nation. Both the people and their leaders are sinners, according to the Old Testament. And that's why you can't have a perfect society and all the king's men are not going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, including the United Nations is not going to put the world back together again, or all the do-good programs are not going to put society back together again, because the evidence is right here. Here you had a society that had the Word of God for its law code, and they still couldn't get it right. So, therefore, the prophets in this period prophesied of the coming kingdom. And that's when the coming kingdom that would have to have two qualities politically and spiritually. What do you suppose they must be? Two qualities. What were the two failures? Failure of the people. Failure of the leaders. So, guess in order to get the kingdom, what do you have to have? A regenerated powerfully enabled people and you have to have perfect leadership. And that's where the big picture begins to grow in the Old Testament. A perfect leader? A perfect leader? Where are we going to get a perfect leader? Seed of David. That's who's going to be the perfect leader. And so now the focus starts in the Old Testament on where do we get the perfect king to have the perfect kingdom? It's got to be a perfect person. So there's this anticipation. Now, Joel, chapter 2, is talking about the days just prior to the inauguration of that wonderful kingdom. So he looks forward in time. And in verse 28, we're going to read this now in its context. It will come about after this, or in the last days, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and... Oh, by the way, look carefully in Job, who is the subject of pour out? We want to do some little, little grammar here. We won't diagram sentences, but remember to spot this because Peter's going to turn this around. I will pour out my spirit. God is the subject of the verb pour out. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh or all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even the male and female servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. End of the first citation of Peter's quote. Now, he's going to quote the second part of this. And I will display wonders in the sky and on earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness. The moon into blood. Before, and this tells you contextually in the flow of history when Joel's looking here, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, what is the great and awesome day of the Lord? It's the coming of the kingdom and the judgments that are going to inaugurate that kingdom. Remember? Judgment, salvation. You can't have salvation without judgment. You can't have the kingdom without purging. So, the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. So, the signs in verses 30 and 31 precede the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, the conclusion of this little vignette inside Joel is verse 32. And verse 32 gives a tremendous sense of the thrust of this passage. What is the reason for pouring out the Spirit in verse 28? What is the reason for the wonders in the sky and on the earth in verse 30? The reason is verse 32. That's what's supposed to happen as a result of the pouring out of the Spirit and the great signs and wonders. 
it will come to pass, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord said, among the survivors or the remnant whom the Lord calls. Not everyone is going to believe. Not everyone, in verse 32, is included. So the issue is going to be, just prior to the kingdom, God will call people to Himself. And it's the people He calls to Himself who will respond and say, I trust in Jesus Christ, who will enter that kingdom. And those who refuse to do so are ejected from the planet. Bye. Don't want to have you around. You people had your day. You didn't want to bow your knee. So you're out of here. Not nice. Not a nice message. But remember the evil chart? God has got to separate good from evil, doesn't He? See? And here's where it's happening. It says in verse 32, only those who call on the name of the Lord are going to be saved. Not everybody. Just those who call on the name of the Lord. Those and those alone. And that's why the word survivors or remnant is used at the last part of verse 32. He's talking about a remnant. The saved remnant will be those who enter the kingdom. Okay. Now let's go back to Acts 2. So, Peter in verse 17 and 18 of this passage cites the first part of that Joel text. And... Peter's clearly interpreting it at the end of verse 18 by saying, see, Joel said, before the great and mighty day of the Lord, there would be this breakout, this pouring out of the Spirit. Now, before we get spooky, let's think and remember, what does the phrase, the verb, pour out the Spirit really mean? Does it mean the people in Toronto that are laughing like hyenas and falling all over the place? That's not the pouring out of the Spirit. Not some weird group in Florida where now they're, I forget what, they're vomiting now. Uh, the evidence of the pouring out of the Spirit is you throw up. I think you throw up looking at them doing this. But this is all the bizarre, stupid, religious junk that goes around by idiots that can't understand the normal English language. What do you do when you don't know what a word means? You look it up in a dictionary. If you don't have a dictionary, you learn by how people use the word. So let's watch. Turn to Proverbs, hold the place, turn to Proverbs 1.23. Here's an example of what that verb means and how it... Poetic parallelism, so it's quite clear. It's a neat passage to discern meaning with. Here's Lady Wisdom, and she's in the role of a teacher. And in verse 23 of Proverbs 1, she says, Turn at my reproof. This is the teacher and the students. Isn't it marvelous? We have school shootings, and everybody's biting their nails. What's happened? What's happened? You took away truth. You took away the Ten Commandments, you took away God and everything else, and you wonder what's happening? Well, I should have some more shootings. Make the point. Verse 23. Turn at my reproof, I will pour out my Spirit on you. Now, what's the next sentence say? Teacher, I make my words known to you. 
So therefore, backing up, what do you think the expression pour out the Spirit means? It's a teacher sharing her heart. That's what it's saying. I'm pouring out my Spirit. I'm telling you my thoughts. I'm sharing my thinking with you. I'm communicating to you. Ah. Well, now, if that's the way it would have been understood in a normal situation, a classroom situation with a teacher sharing her heart or his heart with students, if you replace Lady Wisdom in verse 23 with God, and you replace the students in verse 23 with the people on the day of Pentecost, what does pouring out the Spirit mean? It means God is now sharing some new revelation that wasn't known before. Oh, revolutionary act here. God is now revealing new truths. He's sharing His heart. And that's what that gift of languages was. So go back to Acts 2 now. That's why Peter says, what you have observed in this day of Pentecost, in those eight to ten or however many languages there were, what did you hear those people do? He said, those men who were speaking in foreign languages were communicating the mighty deeds of God. And what do you suppose the mighty deeds of God that they communicate? It doesn't say in the immediate context, but we'll get a clue as we go down through here what the content of the message was in the day of Pentecost. So right now, Peter's at the end of verse 18, he's encapsulating that event and saying, if you've got to think about this event, you've got to think scripturally about the event. So he says, go back in your Old Testament, he says, and it, before the kingdom was to come, before this great moment of history, there was to be a, a preview of coming attractions when new revelation would come out. And in the Joel passage, that new revelation was intended to do what? Remember the last verse 32 in Joel? What was the intended purpose of the new revelation? To call the nation to repentance so they would believe and be able to enter the kingdom. Okay. Now he quotes verses 19, 20, and 21. Now, verses 19 and 20 are a nub of a problem in this passage because there are people who say that verses 19 and 20 were fulfilled in Pentecost. And Peter's not saying that. But we've got to learn why he's quoting this, this verse. This is where things get tricky. There was no blood, fire, and vapor of smoke on the day of Pentecost. There were no geophysical disturbances that answered to that. And what we have now happening in evangelical circles is people are looking at that and saying, well, since there weren't any blood, fire, and smoke, and the sun wasn't turned to darkness, and the moon wasn't turned to blood, therefore we must learn to interpret the Old Testament allegorically. Peter was interpreting the Old Testament allegorically. didn't really mean the literalness. Well, now, wait a minute. Joel was looking forward to geophysical disturbances with the coming of the kingdom. So, why is Peter quoting verse 19 and 20? We can understand verses 17 and 18, but why verses 19 and 20? And then, of course, in verse 21, he quotes the 32nd verse, which shows you, by the way, since he finished out verse 21, he knows also that the purpose of that Joel passage was to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Shall be saved. Well, since we, we've, we've got to say, okay, Peter, um, <clears throat> what, are you, what are you talking about here? Verses 17 and 21 are quotes, so the only thing we can do is do what? Keep reading. 
Let's see if the cue has been, is given somewhere in the text. Okay, he starts out in verse 22 with his commentary now. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Let's skip this Old Testament quote here. Keep going, down to verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, he's both dead and was buried. That's his commentary on this last thing that he just said. What I want you to do, though, is skip down to verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has what? Poured forth this which you both see and hear. Oh! Ooh, we see our verb here now in verse 33, don't we? There's the pouring out. Now you connect that with the first part of the quote from Joel. The first part of that quote from Joel... Verses 17 and 18 was concerned with pouring out the Spirit. Who did we say in the Old Testament was the subject of the verb pour? God. Subject. Verb. Who is the subject of the verb pour? In verse 33. Jesus Christ. Now this is one of those cases in the Bible when you get some Jehovah's Witnesses or something come knocking the eye. Oh, the Bible never says Jesus is God. Oh no. What do you think this is right here? Here Jesus Christ is substituted for Jehovah God. Can you imagine Jews doing this arbitrarily? I don't think so. Monotheistic Jews being this careless to substitute a man in God's position? Not, no. Not unless he really was God. So, this is a tremendously important point in verse 33 and tells you how Peter uses the first part of Joel. What he does is he's saying, look at Pentecost and you'll see languages. And the content, his emphasis right here, really isn't on the fact that they're foreign languages because the issue isn't the miracle of the language. The issue is what? What is being communicated? To the diaspora Jews, it is the wonderful deeds of God. And we presume that the deeds of God are things that just recently happened in history which were the life and death of Jesus Christ. Is that new revelation to these guys? Yeah, they heard about it before. So this is new revelation and it's being communicated in the street by ordinary people. So Peter says, hey, don't get on my case because this didn't come through the high priest, didn't come through an Isaiah, didn't come through a Jeremiah, just came through me. Hey, I'm just a fisherman, I'm in business. You know, Galilean fishing boats or something. And I'm just an ordinary guy. And so are the rest of these guys here. 
But don't think because we're ordinary guys that God can't speak this way because we have the precedent of Job. This is exactly, Peter says, the kind of thing you people should expect just prior to the kingdom. Now, there's some things that we have to deal with, and we're not going to finish tonight because this passage gets involved. But one of the things I want you to see right away from the first part of the Joel passage is Jesus Christ is being substituted deliberately and emphatically for Jehovah God. If Jehovah God is the subject of the verb in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is the subject of the verb of the New Testament, and you can't get around it. Either these guys are blasphemers, or Jesus Christ is who they say He was. And that's the scourge and the offense of the Christian faith. The Christian faith won't let you stand in the middle of the road. There's no gray territory. It's black or it's white, and there's no in-between. There's no demilitarized zone here. You have to take your allegiance on one side of the fence or the other. You can't sit on this fence. It's razor sharp. Either Jesus Christ and the gospel is the most blasphemous message, the most anti-Semitic message that has ever hit the streets, or it's a fantastic revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. So that's what Peter's saying, and we can tell then from verse 33 where he's moving and why he brought in that Joel passage. And he's saying, he's connecting it, notice, in verse 33, with the ascension. Remember I said, why do we study the ascension and session of Christ first, then we studied Pentecost? See, everybody wants to go from the cross, the resurrection, to Pentecost. They leave out the ascension and session. Notice the content in verse 33, where, what is going on there. Look at how much is stated in verse 33. Look at it carefully again. Observe this. Being, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Now, what do you suppose that means? That means when Jesus Christ ascended and he walked in his humanity into the throne room of God and God said, sit down. Suddenly, he accepted a member of the human race who is the second Adam who represents every human being on this planet. He has the genes, he has the body, the fingernails, the hair, the beard, the eyes, the skin of a human being. And he stands at the very helm of the entire cosmos. So, it says, he is exalted to the right hand of God. Now, after he has exalted the right hand of God, he receives from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the promise of the Holy Spirit? Let's conclude tonight by going back to where this promise has occurred. Turn to John chapter 7, verse 39. Because Jesus spoke of this promise. And it's interesting that it's quoted in the Gospel of John, of all things, where scholars want to partition John from all the synoptics and make it appear like John is some out-of-touch person, when as a matter of fact, here's Luke citing something that apparently was common knowledge in the Christian community, but is only reported in the Bible by John. John 7, verse 39. Back in Jesus' lifetime... During his earthly ministry, verse 39, chapter 7, Gospel of John, he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because why? Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had to die, he had to be risen, raised from the dead, and he had to be exalted at the Father's right hand before the Holy Spirit could be given. 
Now, at the very least, with all due apologies to some of our more reformed brethren, verse 39 clearly depicts a new dispensation. But clearly, the Holy Spirit coming is doing something that he didn't do before and wasn't doing even in the time of the apostles when Jesus walked the face of the earth. Something new, a new dispensation happened. Okay, two more verses. John 14, 26. Same gospel. This is the upper room discourse. Jesus is talking here to the disciples. And in chapter 14 of verse 26, what does Jesus Christ say about the Holy Spirit? He says, the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, meaning it's connected, the coming of the Spirit is connected to the what of Jesus Christ? The authority at the Father's right hand. The authority of Jesus Christ over the Holy Spirit. It's going to be another thing that bugs people down through church history, by the way. I had a big fight about that back in the 4th and 5th centuries, or later, somewhere in there. Whom the Father will send in my name. What is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I said to you. That's how the Gospels were written. What is the Holy Spirit, one of His works, promised in verse 26? The writing of what? You're holding it in your lap. The Holy Spirit came to reveal new truths that would be encapsulated in something called the New Testament. Okay, chapter 16, verse 7, the last verse in this series. Again, look at the dispensational changeover that's a forecast to happen when the Spirit comes. Verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Comforter shall not come to you. But if I do go, I will, I will send him to you. So both, who sends the Spirit now? This is a Trinity question. Which members of the Trinity send the Holy Spirit? The Father only? No. The Father and the Son. That's why it's written in the creeds. Who with the Father and the Son is glorified, and so forth and so on. Who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. That's why. These verses. We've run out of time tonight, so we're going to have to halt in the middle of Joel. But the, 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 the big idea here so far is that Peter's citing Joel for a precedent to show that what is happening has tremendous consequences in the overall uh, purpose of history and that there's something going on on the day of Pentecost. It's not just a miraculous event, it's part of a chain of things that are happening. And he's going to develop that as time goes on. If you look at the notes and read them, please, before next time, particularly uh, pages 32 and 33 and 34, uh, because you'll see where we're moving with that and try to give it some thought. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that this momentous event is something that separates us from every Old Testament saint that ever walked the face of the earth. That there has been a new dispensation given, the dispensation of the church, in which a new thing is happening. 
We thank you that in spite of the darkness of the world, in spite of the persecution against the church, in spite of the violence against the church, the murder against the church, we have a Savior who not only has risen from the dead, but who this night sits at your right hand, making intercession for us. We thank you that he alone is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. No member of the human race has ever qualified to walk into the throne room. No member of the human race has ever qualified to be sit at your right hand. But we have a Savior who has. And we give you thanks for giving him to us in his name. Amen. Tonight for uh, some Q&A, if uh, you can generate some questions and interest because Debbie's not here and she's usually our starter, so we might not get started. <laughs> yes, oh, George, he's our secondary starter. <laughs> Second string in tonight, George. Go ahead. Well, uh, that's a good question, George, about resources, because one of the reasons why years and years ago I conceived of this framework approach of thinking about going through the scripture, for number one, number two, dealing with the true doctrines, and number three, dealing with the apologetic issues as they come up with the events is precisely because of that. Years and years ago, I ministered in a university environment where that was happening all the time. And I, 
You can give people quick answers. But the problem is they do exactly what you said. Three weeks later, they're going through another crisis and you're still putting on another Band-Aid, on a new wound. And after a while, you get tired of putting Band-Aids on. And so the problem with those kind of people is that they need to be shooken up. It gets back to what repentance is. That my illustration that I use all the time about the interior decorator shows up with a bulldozer instead of a ladder. Uh, they need to have their whole house blown apart and rebuilt from the ground up because what apparently they must be doing is adding scripture onto a foundation that's otherwise of unbelief. And why the Lord keeps putting them in those situations is deliberately to knock their house down. Because as obviously God is sovereign over the situation, God doesn't enjoy it to have his people picked on. But on the other hand, we do know from church history that the only way the church ever has advanced is to be kicked in the ass. And that's my theological language. Uh, that's the way it's happened. Every great doctrinal clarification has come only after heretics have almost destroyed the church. And in the 20th century, and now the 21st century, one of the great areas uh, of contention is the domain of general revelation. What it, what, see, this is where the Protestant Reformation fell down and didn't continue. Protestant Reformation was great in that it said, if, if this is the Bible, what the Protestant Reformation did is this is the church and this is the Bible. The Protestant Reformation went like this and said all this corruption down here that we don't like, the selling of indulgences and the rest of it, all that is due to the fact that the church tried to exalt itself here and it fell apart. And it must not. The word of God must take priority over the church. So that's where Luther and Calvin came up. How did these guys have the guts, the guts, to take on all of Europe. They weren't just taking on the Pope. They were taking on every country in Europe and said, you're wrong. And you can burn me at the stake and you can do whatever you want to. You're still wrong. And not only are you wrong, you're going to hell unless you listen to what I have to say to you. Now, why did they do that? Because they saw that the scripture must be exalted over the church. Now, that was their battle, and that took a, a hundred, two hundred years to straighten out. But then what the Protestant reformers failed to do is to deal with the whole domain of general revelation out here. History, science, and all the rest. The Bible's over here, this is over here. And because this wasn't subdued by this, we've allowed to grow all kinds of theories, frameworks, uh, organization of data into data sets that are deliberately construed on an unbelieving basis. I mean, if you can think in terms of data sets, because a computer guy, George, it's as though we're dealing with a data set, a, a database program whose query language won't even permit a query of the kind we want to make. It's not that the data in the database is wrong. It's that the query language is all screwed up. And that's coming about because the Word of God was never put over here. That's why the creationist evolution debate, when Henry Morris did his thing in the middle part of the 20th century, that was a revolutionary act. 
Because all of a sudden, here's a chunk, a vast chunk of data, geology, biology, that all of a sudden he walks in with the Bible. And I was, I was there when that happened, and I did my thesis on every single criticism Morrison Wickham ever got for the first eight years of that book. And there were evangelical geologists who said, oh, well, historical geologists have been building this frame of reference for 120 years, and now Whitcomb and Morris come along in the name of the family Bible and say it's all wrong? Nonsense. If Whitcomb and Morris have their way, all geologists will take up bus driving. Now, that's, that's what happened. It happened in, in the 60s. That's when all this was happening. But it was a revolutionary act because what did Morris and Wickham do? They had done to the sciences what the reformers had done to the church and they didn't like it any more than the Roman Catholics liked submitting to this. And so, so that hasn't been done. And so this biblical criticism, all this stuff that you keep getting articulated in the classroom, it all comes out of historical frame of reference that grew up like a toadstool free from any control of the Word of God. And the sad thing is that it grew up over a hundred years, hundred, two hundred years, and to undo and build a counterstructure now requires millions, if not billions of dollars and hundreds of millions of man hours. An awful lot of work out there to take all that data and rebuild it in some sort of a frame of reference. And, and it's, it's from the human point of view, it's not going to be done. It's sad. But we, we let history get out of control. And now we're paying a price for it. And it goes, it's in every area. It's infecting language. It's infecting how we read the Constitution of the United States. It's how we look at art. It's how we look at music. It's how we look at history. It's how we look at science. The whole field is, is just full of weeds and toadstools. And that's what's happening. And what happens to people like you're talking about, George, is that they never get challenged to get down deep down roots and figure out where they are coming from and what the criteria of truth is in life. And that's why you see me up there giving that diagram about, you know the one I have on, uh, on uh, thinking God's thoughts after him? versus the pagan idea of taking finite experience and trying to expand it, and then I have to fight on evil. Why do I do that over and over and over again? It's because that's where the problem is. That's exactly the heart and the guts of what's going on. It's wrong. Either you start with finite knowledge and try to expand it as a creature, which is a futile thing, because you never can build universals or absolutes out of a finite data set. Or you realize this doesn't work. You got, I, I got to abandon that methodology and, and search for one that gives me a base for saying right and wrong and true and false. And the only base is an omniscient infinite mind. Because only an, an, an omniscient infinite mind has absolutes. It has the line that goes all the way from infinity to infinity. That's God's knowledge. Mine is only a segment. So I, I don't know what goes on. I don't know that. And I can't build it. If I lived a million years, I still couldn't build my, my line from eternity to eternity. So I've got to go somewhere. And I can't go to another creature. And I can't even build a committee of creatures. So I have to go to something, an omniscient personal being, and that's exactly what the Scripture says that God is. 
And that's why when he speaks, he speaks authoritatively. And we may not understand it. We may have bits and pieces, and he does. He feeds it out in little chunks like this. Now you figure it out. Along the same lines, what he's talking about in the science world, we were watching uh, a couple weeks ago when they had the uh, uh, research kind of Parkinson's disease, and they were using the 14 day old embryos as the uh, new stem cells that they're working right now. The, uh, the ethical question is that if we use them before the 14 day point, they're okay to use, but after the 14th day, we don't want to touch them because that's when the cells start to specialize into a heart or a lung or a brain or something. And I was sitting there thinking the same thing has happened in that realm. Where do you even start to begin legislation to, to restrict that kind of research when they're still having a hard time realizing that that's even a baby? Hold on. Abortion issue bred the ground for this. You see, the problem goes back to uh, in this bio, bioethics question. It's a terrifying. I mean, this is really terrifying stuff. Um, because it's not just stem cells. It's all into the food we eat and everything else. And the problem that we're seeing, they, we, we, we're not going to see Christian legislation. We, we don't have to pull anymore. Um, but what we might see is a horror and a fear of consequences. Chuck Colson was pointing out not too many broadcasts and Breakpoint ago, he made an interesting observation. He said, you know, you know what the strictest nation in Europe is against genetic research? Guess. Strictest nation in Europe. Yeah, why? Exactly. Germany has the most restrictive legislation, and Germany is the most scientific nation. Now, why do the Germans have, why have they encapsulated this ethical issue like that? Because they lived through the experiments in the 30s when we were taking Jews apart and using their skin for lampshades, and we were cutting them up using their teeth for something while they were still alive. And they lived through that and they live through the horror of that, and they haven't forgotten it. They will in a couple of more generations if it's not renewed. But the point is, that horror of that, the 30s and the 40s, hasn't left their minds because there's enough German older people around to remind the younger people of their history. When the old people die off, the young people just let loose. But, because history is a controller. So there's no realistic understanding of history. And what's going to happen, probably, and we can pray that God won't let it happen, because God does restrain sin, is some bizarre thing will happen. It'll literally scare the kajibers out of everybody. Either a virus will get loose that they've been experimenting with, and all of a sudden we can't control it, or some freak will happen, or something else will happen, and maybe, maybe that's what it'll take. But it's not going to be because we have a bunch of Christians saying, don't legislate against it. I mean, I'm saying we should say that. I'm just saying that it's blowing into the wind. But we live on it. They see the problem is that it's always, if you look carefully, every one of these things starts with, quote, good intentions. Now, the way they like to sell it is they like to sell it to you as, oh, we're so, we're so... Uh, in sympathy with Parkinson's people, say. 
And it's you Christians with all your restrictions, and you don't care about the Parkinson's people. And so, see, they always take, the, the, what they try to do, you see this again and again, is if this is the floor that we're all at, they try to come up here with, with their pulpit, and see, we're for Parkinson's. You guys aren't for Parkinson's. We've got a holy cause. And they try to take the ethical high ground. And the only way I think you can fight that, and I, I've thought about it, I mean, I, I pray for Nancy Jacobs, and she's in the middle of the stuff that goes on down there, to feeling totally overwhelmed by every vote that comes up in the, in the Senate down in Minneapolis. I mean, you know, a few Christians that are down there, I mean, what do you do when you live in a sewer? And so... I've thought about, it it takes somebody with skill, charisma and political skill that's good on their feet. But I think that somebody needs to figure out how we can take the high ground back away from them by exposing what they're doing in such a way that we don't come across like we're trying to obstruct something, rather like we're actually positively for something. Now, we tried that with, a, with the abortion debate, pro-life. And somehow we really didn't make that point strongly enough and because the, the women with, quote, choice, I have a right to do with my body the way I want to do it. And they, they basically won the, that discussion because in the masses, in society at large, the image was, I have a right. And that blended perfectly with the fact that, I mean, the bugs have a right. Everybody has a right except believers um, and, and Jesus. And so, so everybody's got the right. So once that sets in and you hide underneath that, you, you share all the momentum of that thing. We've got to figure out how to articulate and communicate our case to a society that doesn't share our values. That isn't easy. One, one thing that may make this battle a little bit different is that when, you were, when we were battling abortion, pro-life versus pro-choice, you had a, a woman who was right in the middle of it. This time, we have pharmaceutical companies that are standing to make a lot of money. Now, if you change the argument and you say, and you come by the approach that we want we want to solve the problems of Parkinson's and other uh, uh, kind of deficiency uh, problems and so on and so on and so on. But we don't want these people to feel like they're living on the death. Yeah, there, there's an approach. Yeah. And then you turn it, you turn the tables on that, and then you see this the pharmaceutical. Then it kind of exposes the pharmaceutical companies, and they're left with no ally to stand on their side, no personification of some ally to stand on their side. Well, it's going to require a, a, a major and brilliant, brilliantly skillful approach. And, uh, and it may come down to, the, to a tug of war. I, I heard uh, from someone, a liberal source, I forgot where it was, I was reading it, that they said, this latest, the, the episode we had with John Ashcroft, they said they were totally Stunned in both houses of Congress by the outpouring of pro-Ashcroft. They said they never dreamed that he had the, the support. Well, he really didn't. What happened was 
that it hit an issue. The Ashcroft hit an issue that was sitting there percolating all along, and finally people who didn't know Ashcroft and the man on the moon realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, you talk about racial profiling. This is Christian profiling. They're just waiting for a Christian to come up so they can shoot him. And so there was thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of Christians said, enough is enough of this stuff. And we're going to do something about it. Well, all of a sudden, phone calls, emails, everything else came in. And whoa, we've got a hot potato here. We're just, you know, like good politicians. We'll leave that one alone. So, yeah, you're okay, John. Fine, you take over. So that's what happens. And that's the kind of response we've got to get. But how we get that, I don't know. It's just a lot of prayerful support and skill. But we've been outmaneuvered in a lot of areas. Right, and I, I think I think what breeds that is the one good thing that's been percolated. See, the dirty little secret that the liberals haven't figured out yet, nobody's t- nobody's clued them, is that grooming underneath this evangelical community are tens of thousands of homeschool kids that are now emerging. They're hitting their twenties, and they don't share that core value system that was imposed in the public schools. And they, they don't even come in contact with it. So now all of a sudden, now you really do have two cultures. I mean, our young people, the, the guys, that, gals that are hitting their early 20s, they're going to really see some interesting days. Because you talk about black and white society with no gray in between, that's what they're going to live in. It's going to be exciting because it'll, it'll, they'll be in a situation where the, it won't be like the 50s and 60s where kind of everybody was operating on a quasi-Christian basis. This is going to be the, the out-and-out pagans and the out-and-out Christians. It'll be a fascinating time. It's just that they have to be fortified and they have to realize they're taking on a big thing here. So, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the fruit of a lot of work. While we've been praying for revival and we've been praying for these kind of things, very quietly, and not just homeschoolers, but godly couples raising their kids as best they can with the public system, um, as well as the homeschoolers. The parents have sent their kids to Christian schools. I think all that, that's been going on now for a generation or two. And that's bound to cause some, pro- cause some interesting problems with the other side. Okay, well, our time's up, and uh, next week we'll try to finish up with this uh, Pentecost commentary.